today we are hearing from our infectious disease specialists on a variety of COVID-19 topics. Uh, they are not involved in distribution plans for vaccine administration, so please hold any questions related to those specific logistics. Uh, also, this session is available for CME credit. We'll have an email that you'll receive after today's session, and you can claim credit for viewing now live or viewing the recording, which is available at the same link as the invite. And now, as mentioned, we are hearing today from three of our St. Vincent infectious disease specialists, Dr. Jen Marfori, Dr. Rachel Platinsky, and Dr. Tobias Push. They are pillars of clinical excellence, as well as outstanding teachers. We really lean on their expertise and their leadership, and now more than ever during this era of the COVID-19 pandemic. Without further ado, we're excited to hear from them. Thank you. Looks good. We're seeing your slides. Okay. Good morning, everyone. Um, I'm Jen Marfori, and thanks to Laura and the uh, Grand Rounds crew for inviting us to kick off 2021 um, with the same exciting topic that we thought about all through 2020. So Rachel, Tobias, and I have a variety of little snippets for you this morning. Um, I am chartered with giving an update on testing, and what I'll say is that um, testing now, I think, at least for me, remains as complicated as it did uh, six or nine months ago. Um, and every time I think about sending a COVID test, I have a list of questions sort of that I process in the back of my mind um, when I think about what I'm ordering and when I'm going to order it. So who am I testing? Am I testing somebody who's symptomatic or asymptomatic? Uh, what type of test do I want? And a lot of that is constrained by what do we actually have available? What specimens preferred? Um, what do you do with a positive test result? Because it's not always what you think you would do. Um, and then the thing that I think has emerged for us in the last few months is um, how do we regard testing in our immune compromised populations? And so this is just a smattering of questions that I get asked over and over, and I'm not gonna go through them today. You can um, access the slides afterwards, but it's important to kind of think about um, what exactly the information is that you want. Do you wanna know if your patient had COVID six months ago? Do you wanna know um, what the deal is with your patient who had COVID but is still sick? Um, do you want to know, um, you know, what the likelihood is that your test is going to be valid if you have a patient who was exposed to COVID? So think about those things before you decide which test you're going to send. And um, when we think about testing, we still have to think about basic virology. Um, SARS-CoV-2 is an enveloped beta coronavirus that has this beautiful center uh, of RNA here and an envelope that is covered with proteins, most notably the spike protein. Um, the spike protein is the most important of these because it is the way in which the virus interacts and infects our cells. Um, and it is also the source um, 
of our neutralizing antibodies. So we look at it in terms of a diagnostic molecule, but also an intervention molecule for development of vaccine. The genome is seen in two open reading frames, and there's multiple opportunities here for targets for testing. Um, when you think about testing, you also have to think about your patient and where they fall into in, in terms of their clinical infectivity. So, you know, I think our understanding of uh, viral loads and infectivity really was a surprise for SARS-CoV-2. When we think about uh, SARS-CoV-1, this sort of turquoise curve here really was shifted to the right. So with SARS-CoV-2, we see peak viral loads in the presymptomatic phase very early in infection and then starting to decline beginning around day 14 and hitting a nadir here, probably somewhere between days eight and 10. Uh, SARS-CoV-1, this curve was shifted way over to the right. So when people were at their most ill, we were seeing their high viral loads. So unfortunately, a lot of our patients will present for, for clinical evaluation in this phase of the curve, you know, say between days four and eight, where, you know, your viral load may, re in the nasopharynx anyway, may really be on that downward curve. So it's important to understand that um, as you think about testing and as you interpret your results. So available tests and targets, it's, it's really difficult to keep track of these things. The FDA has a pretty thorough website that can give you access to all of the currently authorized um, tests. These are all under emergency use authorization. So none of these are really approved. We call them authorized, not approved. As of yesterday morning, there were 203 nucleic acid amplification tests, 11 antigen tests, and 64 antibody tests available for use. Uh, it's important to remember specific for specifically for nucleic acid testing that all of these tests involve multiple targets. So we're not just looking for one little tiny piece of DNA or sorry, RNA. Uh, we're looking for the presence of um, nucleic acid material at various sites. So you're going to have more than one target comprising a single test. Um, I get a lot of questions. We all get a lot of questions about the sensitivity and specificity of the test. and. It remains variable depending upon your assay. And the other thing I think I'll mention is that um, we think about sensitivity and specificity analytically in the lab and then clinically when we're talking about patients. Um, and I have another slide about that. So it's important to remember that our analytical sensitivity, so when you ask me, is this test sensitive? Is it gonna pick up viral DNA or viral RNA? That's a different answer than whether it's clinically sensitive. Um, in general, antigen testing, which I'll talk about in a second, um, is viewed as less sensitive compared to nucleic acid testing. So um, this is a graph comparing clinical and analytical sensitivity, and it just goes to emphasize that you really have to know where your patient is uh, in terms of their pretest probability when you use um, currently available numbers to interpret your test. So when we talk about just identification of RNA in the lab, our analytical sensitivity is really high, as it is with almost all PCR-based technology. So you can really push your, um, your pretest probability very low and still be able to believe your test. In this pink range here are patients that are known not to be infected. So when you have a test that's you know 90 plus percent sensitive, you can still have a pretest probability that's only 10 or 20 percent and believe your result. But when we think about SARS-CoV-2 nucleic acid testing, our sensitivity in a clinical arena does drop some 
70, 80%, et cetera. And so your pretest probability, in order for you to, to really believe a negative test, you can't get down to a pretest probability of, of very low. And it also stands to reason that when your pretest probability is really, really high and you get a test result that you're not expecting, you have to question it and consider re resending. Um, so some of the other stuff that has emerged over the last few months are these issues of viral persistence and infectivity, particularly in immune compromised patients, and the role of repeat testing and whether or not we want to do it, especially when testing has been so constrained due to supplies, um, etc. So um, what we've come to learn, and, and this informs how CDC suggests that we isolate and de-isolate patients, is that by by around day nine or 10, it's really, really uncommon to find replication competent virus. And what I mean by that is that when you take a nasal swab or a sputum sample from someone um, that has a positive PCR test, it's almost impossible beyond nine days to actually culture virus that can then reinfect and cause cytopathic effect in a healthy cell culture. Um, there is also this issue of cycle threshold values. All of our PCR uh, base platforms have what's called a cycle threshold, so the number of cycles to turn the test positive. The higher the viral load, the fewer the cycles. Um, there's a lot of chatter about cycle thresholds being able to predict um, culture negativity or less infectivity, uh, but that's really sort of a lab-based phenomenon. It's not going to be something that is um, really clinically applicable and, and uh, if you call the lab and ask them about cycle threshold times, they're going to push back on you. Um, they don't like to release it in part because every different test, every different platform, and we have seven of them here at St. Vincent's just for nucleic acid testing, they all have different cycle threshold values. Um, and then it's difficult to extrapolate this curve or, or, or have this curve relate to immune suppressed patients. So there are multiple case reports now. This is a really good one here um, from the New England Journal a few months ago, looking at um, a person that was immune suppressed from malignancy and also had gotten a monoclonal antibody um, who had relapsing and persistent COVID-19 that describes four to five separate episodes of COVID uh, clinical disease, uh, all from the same virus that was felt to persist in this one patient who was really immune suppressed. Um, and so when we think about um, testing beyond, say, day 15, 20, um, it's probably not going to be all that beneficial if you're looking at either antigen or PCR testing. And when we think about retesting, we generally don't recommend it because we do know that people can shed teeny tiny amounts of virus that our very sensitive analytical platforms can pick up, but it may not be clinically meaningful. So we still do testing in this time frame for certain indications like clearing someone to go to skilled nursing or for a procedure, but in general, it's not recommended. Um, this is just a quick screenshot of our Providence testing algorithm. You can find this on um, the COVID SharePoint. It's in, if you click through testing in the upper right corner. Um, and what I'll say is that it's really complicated. Um, it's difficult to follow, but a lot of this is related to the fact that we have multiple platforms and we have a certain number of tests allocated in each platform. So this is a way for you as a clinician to sort of figure out where you want to go um, or you know which bucket your patient falls into, what your turnaround time might be. Some of this of course is supply dependent. Uh, but then in the lower right hand corner I just want to point out that we do now offer home testing which I'll talk about in a minute. So a pivot to rapid testing and, and um, you know in my mind 
PCR testing is all rapid, but what we really mean by rapid testing when we talk about this is test results in under an hour. Um, it can either be nucleic acid based or antigen based. Um, in general, though, you don't need a nasopharyngeal swab. You actually want to go lower in the nose, so either mid-turbinate or nasal swab. And there is a little concern that when you increase speed, you decrease accuracy. So um, some of the data would suggest that rapid testing may not quite be as sensitive as our standard nucleic acid-based testing with a turnaround time of, you know, one to two days in an ideal world. Um, we also recognize that for antigen testing in particular, patients who have had symptoms for more than five days probably don't have a whole lot of antigen hanging around their nose, so uh, your testing uh, sensitivity is really going to decline after that point in time. Um, and the other big thing is that negative testing uh, may require follow-up, so uh, particularly in symptomatic patients. If you have someone with a high pretest probability of COVID-19, clinical disease, they're symptomatic, they have a negative antigen test, you definitely want to back that up with um, a PCR test and, and preferably soon, like within 48 hours. Uh, one of the benefits of rapid, say, antigen or PCR testing, uh, despite its maybe lower sensitivity, is that if you can do a lot more tests at a lower cost, these are often uh, lower in cost than our standard PCR platforms, um, you can pick up cases and quarantine them sooner. And so, you know, the whole notion of don't let perfect be the enemy of good. So when you're looking to do large numbers of serial tests uh, at a low cost with um, a short turnaround time, um, despite its lower sensitivity, uh, rapid testing is likely to be helpful in that situation. So when we think about um, nursing homes or containing outbreaks, that kind of thing. So antigen testing is not something that we are presently offering, but it, you know, it's possible that we will in the near future. I'm, I'm not sure. Um, these are easy tests. These are these work based on lateral flow technology. The classic lateral flow assay is a home pregnancy test. So it works just like that where you drop your specimen um, onto a pad and you sort of wait for it to run um, and you'll have a control window and an intervention window. Um, we use them to detect active infection only, so um, it's not really going to be useful for kind of telling your patient if they had COVID a long time ago, but we think it would be effective in asymptomatic, presymptomatic, and symptomatic patients. Um, literally, you swab your nose, you inoculate it into the buffer, um, and all of these are designed to be simple and they're CLIA waived um, because of that. So CLIA has a lot to do with how complex your test is to run. Um, there are issues with false negatives. The FDA has issued an alert about false negative antigen testing. So as I mentioned before, if you have a high pretest probability, you may need to back that up. And when we look at comparing antigen and PCR testing, if we know, for example, that the patient's got a pretty low viral load in the nose, so their cycle threshold times are high, um, that's when we're likely to, to have a false uh, negative antigen test. So it does, you know, correlate fairly well. Um, home testing. So this was a kind of a surprise to me. I really didn't know this existed until I was um, kind of snooping around the website and putting slides together. Um, so if you click on the link in that testing algorithm that I mentioned, and I, and I put the website down here, um, you'll get to this page that um, shows you the relationship between Providence and LabCorp. Uh, LabCorp helps us with a lot of our send out testing. And the Pixel test, which was um, given its uh, FDA EUA on December 9th, is now available. Um, and we are really prioritizing it for 
uh, asymptomatic patients. Um, in general, testing is still limited. So if you read the website, it's advised for asymptomatic patients who've been instructed to get a test. But from my understanding, any patient who really wants this test can, can get it. So what they do is they go to the website. Um, there's a lot of instructions, but they basically they request a kit and it generates an account. Um, this is a home-based PCR test, so they'll collect a nasal swab. It is only valid in adults over age 18. Um, you basically order the kit and it'll arrive in one to two days. Um, the turnaround time is one to two days after the lab has received the sample and they are processing them seven days a week. Um, interestingly, it is the patient's responsibility to inform his or her primary care provider of the results of this test. Um, negative test just gets dropped into email um, and a positive test will get a follow-up phone call from um, LabCorp. There's no order that's necessary in EPIC and uh, the cost, according to the flyer that's circulating, is $119 without insurance, um, but apparently the cost is zero if you have insurance. Um, I do want to mention a little bit about the variants and how they may um, affect testing. The short answer is they won't, but um, all in the news lately is this UK B117 variant, but there are also other variants, the South African and Nigerian variants. Um, have been described, and these are not surprising. Uh, viruses are, are busy little molecules. They make lots of mistakes as they replicate themselves, and now that we have millions and millions of cases, there are millions and millions of opportunities to make small mistakes, most of which are not significant. But this strain in particular, which was first sort of discovered and reported in December, but likely has been circulating in the UK since September and now represents more than 60% of cases in the greater London area, has a pretty large number of mutations compared to the novel Wuhan strain that was described all those months ago. Um, probably at least eight of them are related to the S protein. Um, and as of New Year's Day, this is very, very widespread. It's been demonstrated in 33 countries. Um, and last I looked, it was in three states. Uh, and then last night, I decided not to update my slides. It was described in New York. Um, in the United States, none of these cases have been linked to travel, which basically means we're not really going to contain it. So these travel bans, you know, in my mind, seem somewhat silly. We're really still in just mitigation. Uh, we're, we're fully in mitigation, I should say. Um, but as of yesterday, um, according to the Oregon Health Authority, no. Um, None of these isolates had been identified in Oregon. Um, so the issue with it, of course, is, is it more transmissible? Um, do patients have higher viral loads? Um, there is some suggestion that it's considerably more transmissible, 70% more transmissible. But And what that means, though, is, you know, if we think that um, in a room of 100 people, 15 will get COVID after um, an exposure time of 15 minutes at less than six feet. 70% more transmissible means 22 cases at the end of that time frame. Uh, but in reality, it may be much less than that. You know, London is a really highly concentrated area. They have lots of population. Um, so that may explain more than just, you know, the fact that the virus in and of itself is more transmissible. Um, it's a little unclear, you know, why this variant has sort of established itself. Um, there's uh, some concern about, you know, did we put undue pressure on it with our use of monoclonal antibodies? Um, has this ar arisen because of ongoing replication in immune compromised hosts? 
Um, and then, of course, there's the mink issue or animal reservoirs, maybe beyond minks, but there have been uh, well-described mink outbreaks. And minks are unusual in the sense that they can not only contract coronavirus from humans, but they can spread it to humans as well. Um, in general, though, it changes nothing at this time. There's no evidence that we're going to have a decrease in our efficacy of monoclonal antibody therapy or vaccine therapy. Um, we will be looking to see if vaccine escape variants exist or, or are created, but um, no cause for alarm for that at the moment. Um, and it does not affect testing in short. So these mutations typically occur in the S gene. Those are the most significant ones. And this was found in part because of this one Thermo Fisher COVID kit where um, two of only two of the three targets were turning positive. And so um, what was not turning positive is what's called this S gene dropout. So this deletion mutation in the S gene on this, on this particular strain is not picked up by the test, but the two other targets are. So you're not going to get a false negative test. It's just going to look a little bit different if you get down to the nitty gritty of how you read the test results. So none of the testing assays that we use at Providence target this gene. So the tests as we have them um, are not going to be affected. Um, but you know, if you're outside of Providence, um, it does make good sense always to know what your testing algorithm is. So um, that was a rapid fire update on variants and testing. So um, I will conclude my slides now and turn it over to Rachel. Good morning, everyone. Um, so I'm going to shift gears and um, I'm going to be discussing reinfection with SARS-CoV-2 and the post-COVID-19 syndrome. So um, I'm going to begin by discussing the issues um, that were outlined really nicely in this article that was just published in the Journal of Clinical Microbiology last week. Um, I thought it was appropriately titled The Importance and Challenges of Identifying SARS-CoV-2 Reinfections. And they describe four key points around this issue that remain unknown about reinfection. Um, one, is SARS-CoV-2 reinfection a widespread phenomenon or is it limited to a small number of individuals who may have some sort of immune deficit? Um, does reinfection indicate that the natural immune response to SARS-CoV-2 is too weak, too short, or too narrow to protect against subsequent exposure? What are the clinical consequences for patients who experience reinfection? And to what extent might reinfection contribute to forward transmission? So these are all important and unknown questions right now. Dr. Potinsky, I think we Rachel. need to share your slides still. Oh, yeah, we can see you, Rachel. That I did. Let me try that again. Is it not? Can you not see them? No, not, no, yet. not as of yet, Rachel. Huh. It worked perfectly before. How about now? Yeah, it's coming up. There you go. Can you see it now? Yes, Perfect. We can. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Sorry, that was bizarre. Sorry about that. So um, moving on, so um, in early fall, we began to see some case reports of people reinfected with um, SARS-CoV-2. The first report of reinfection in the US was published in October in The Lancet and describes a 23-year-old man in Nevada. He developed COVID symptoms with cough, 
fever, headache, nausea, and diarrhea on March 25th, and his infection was confirmed by the um, nucleic acid PCR testing um, on April 18th. Um, his symptoms resolved on April 27th, and he had two subsequent negative COVID tests in May. Um, on May 28th, he once event, again developed COVID symptoms similar to those that he had in March, although this time, in addition, he was hypoxic and required some supplemental oxygen. He had repeat PCR testing that was again positive, along with positive COVID antibody testing. So in this case, um, both samples from his initial infection and the second infection were actually kept and the genome from the isolated virus were sequenced from both of these specimens. Um, this is a critical element in evaluating and proving reinfection and is one of the reasons why we don't investigate all suspected cases of reinfection. And that's because we generally don't keep the original specimens in order to compare them later if someone is reinfected. So here on this slide, you can see over on the right hand, you can see the Wuhan um, virus, the initial virus. And as uh, Jen mentioned, there are multiple mutations that have um, occurred naturally since then. Um, this patient specimen A is over there on the bottom left, and then specimen B is up high on the other side. Um, these uh, specimens A and B are still in the same clade or subtype of SARS-CoV-2. Um, but they have a very high number of mutations between them, and they have more mutations than you would be expect that would be expected to have occurred naturally in the same strain over the 48 days in between tests. So this is consistent with infection by a different viral strain. Um, just to explain this in a bit more detail, Jen discussed the sort of natural mutations that occur, and there is this expected low rate of mutations over time that occur in this virus, which is generally estimated to be two mutations per month. So if the second viral isolate from this patient obtained less than two months later had only a few mutations in it compared to the first, it could be said that the second sample is the same virus he had in April, that he had perhaps been harboring it in his body since then. And in that case, a few mutations would be expected and wouldn't mean that it was an entirely new strain with which he was infected. Here, however, his two infections were separated by 49 days and he had far more than the expected three to four nucleotide differences or mutations in that time span. So this was certainly suggestive of infection with a completely different strain of virus. The JCM study I described in my first slide um, also uh, produced a case series of 16 reinfections reported in the literature. These were selected because all 16 had specimens from both first and second infections with genomic evidence um, for reinfection with a different viral strain as in our Nevada patient. Of the 16 patients, 50% were 20 to 30 years old, 73% were male, and 50% were considered at high risk for exposure to COVID-19. So um, they were either um, healthcare workers, seven of them, one was a nursing home re uh, resident. Um, for both the first and second illness, 75% were, were mild or asymptomatic. And when matching these illnesses between first and second, half of them had a less severe infection on the second go around. Um, of note, of these 16 patients, 14 uh, had the cycle threshold measured, with which Jen also uh, described. So as she mentioned, it's a measure of viral replication, and generally the lower the cycle threshold, the more likely it is that there is actively replicating virus present. It's a difficult measure to compare, as she mentioned, because the samples um, are often taken on different machines and then and the number varies depending on which machine is used to run the tests. However, 
Um, in this case series, the median cycle thresholds for both first and second infections were in the range in which active viral replication is thought to be occurring. So it did seem like they had active virus present in both first and second rounds. So the question is, uh, who is at risk for reinfection with SARS-CoV-2? There are still a lot of questions about the function of antibody against SARS-CoV-2 and its durability. So perhaps low antibody response or waning levels over time are a risk factor for reinfection. This study um, in the New England Journal looked at antibody levels over time in people who had mild COVID-19 illness and noted what they termed rapid decay of antibody levels in the 60 to 120 days after illness onset. Uh, in this graph, they graphed these declining levels over time logarithmically. So this was a little concerning to see a fairly rapid decline in antibody levels if in fact that is what is going to protect us against reinfection. Uh, however, this study was a little bit more reassuring. This was just published in the New England Journal um, on December 23rd. It was a study in which healthcare workers had serologic testing for anti-COVID antibody, and it shows that those healthcare workers who were antibody positive at baseline had good protection against having a positive COVID PCR in the six months after. So you'll see here that the red line is those who tested antibody negative at baseline, and with the increase in COVID cases that started in the fall around September, October, those who tested positive um, followed the community trends and had much uh, increase in positive testing. However, those with antibody at baseline had a much lower rate of positive PCR tests during that same time period. So here we're seeing that there is a good durability of antibody protection. So clearly we need more information about who gets reinfected and who doesn't despite ongoing high risk for exposure. This graphic demonstrates this need and the proposal that standardized assays of immune response in both populations need to be studied in order to better understand this. And while this graphic was published before the approval of our COVID-19 vaccines that we're now using, we don't yet know how long protection is after vaccination, just as with natural infection. So those studies would um, illuminate both of those uh, points. The Centers for Disease Control, or CDC, also acknowledges the need for more understanding of this uh, issue of reinfections. The CDC actually created a protocol to standardize investigation of reinfections with the following objectives. So one is to determine the frequency at which SARS-CoV-2 reinfection occurs among persons who appear to have recovered clinically from COVID-19, to characterize suspected SARS-CoV-2 reinfection cases and resulting laboratory evidence to better understand the natural history of SARS-CoV-2 infection and to guide our public health response, and three, to determine the time interval from initial illness to reinfection. Um, in this toolkit, the population of highest interest is, is those who have a second positive test more than 90 days after the original illness and a cycle threshold value that is low. So less than 33 is the cutoff here. Um, the key here again is that there needs to be a sample from both the first and second illness because as I discussed previously, the best evidence for reinfection is in genome sequencing of both viral isolates and finding that they're quite different. The CDC toolkit suggests that the best evidence for reinfection is demonstrating, as I mentioned, that the two viruses are of different clades. That is, that would be the most different that they could be. Moderate evidence is showing, as in the Nevada patient, more than two nucleotide differences for every month in between the two infections. And poor evidence would be showing less than two mutations. So that might just signify that the patient has the same, um, is still harboring the same virus from the initial infection. 
All of these should be coupled with evidence of actual active infection. So this evidence could be measured um, with high viral titers, a sample that's positive for something called SGM RNA, which is another marker for active replication, or if the virus is actually cultured. The JCM article also has this nice table. Um, I thought that was a nice uh, description of actions around reinfection response, which include creating a case definition for reinfection and screening patients for this, establishing a surveillance framework for these investigations, performing prospective follow-up, and of course, studying the immune kinetics around these cases so we can better understand the risk factors for reinfection. So I'm going to shift uh, gears now and uh, talk briefly about patients with prolonged symptoms after active infection with SARS-CoV-2. Um, these patients, you have maybe heard the term, are called long haulers, um, and they tend to fall into two groups. There are those who experience some permanent damage to their organs, lungs, heart, kidneys, or brain that may affect their ability to, to function. Um, and those, the second group is those who continue to experience debilitating symptoms despite no detectable damage to these organs. So the first group is sort of more understandable. They've had some clear damage um, that may be permanent, which could explain ongoing symptoms. The second group is a little bit harder to explain. Um, up to 10% of patients who had COVID uh, fall into one of these groups, and many have had mild acute illness. So again, it's hard to understand why their symptoms are so prolonged. There's a CDC study that showed nearly a fifth and uh, health, uh, one fifth of healthy adults, 18 to 34, were not back to their usual health, 14 to 21 days after their positive test, which we suppose was around when their symptoms started. This doesn't seem to be such a long time, but this is in contrast to influenza, in which more than 90% of patients in this age group are better or basically back to baseline two weeks after their influenza infection. There was a phone survey that was performed in, which documented symptoms experienced by patients recovering um, from COVID-19. Um, you'll see there that the um, top bar was uh, what was reported at their initial testing, symptom onset, and then the dark blue bar is um, symptoms that were unresolved by the interview date. Um, the most common lingering symptoms 14 to 21 days after a positive test were fatigue, cough, shortness of breath, and headache. There were other symptoms also noted to persist, which is the loss of taste and smell, some GI symptoms, um, and confusion. There was a similar study published in JAMA that shows um, similar persistent symptoms with fatigue present in almost 60% of patients. Um, and in this study, they were evaluated amina 60 days after their diagnosis. So this is even further out. Um, at that point, only 12.6% were absolutely symptom-free. Um, and 44% reported worsening quality of life. So this is 60 days out. So that is uh, quite significant. Quite a large number of people were not um, cured or not resolved from their infection. In addition to perhaps the expected symptoms um, of fatigue, cough, shortness of breath, um, this graphic shows many other symptoms that patients report. Um, some of the you know, other ones are hair loss, either high blood pressure, low pr blood pressure, spikes in blood pressure, low, spikes in blood pressure, um, dry lips, swollen glands, postnasal drip, um, and other many other things. Um, and Dr. Fauci himself has made note of this post-viral syndrome and suggested um, in, a, in a talk he gave that it's highly suggestive and highly similar um, to myalgic encephalomyelitis or what we call the chronic fatigue syndrome. 
Um, there is, of course, is ongoing data being collected on these patients, but thus far at this point, it's recommended um, that if a patient presents with what appears to be a post-COVID syndrome, it's very important, number one, to validate the, their symptoms. We clearly can see that this is uh, a true thing that many patients are going to experience. Um, supportive care should be offered, um, and there are some suggestions uh, to follow the Institute on Medicine's um, myalgic encephalomyelitis uh, CFIS guidelines, which include activity management and pacing, so you don't sort of overexert yourself, good sleep hygiene, and then therapies directed to manage pain and associated mental illness. Um, and I imagine as this continues on and we have more and more people recovering from COVID-19 and perhaps developing this post-COVID-19 syndrome, we will see more of what are being called post-COVID care centers. Um, and these care centers include a multidisciplinary team uh, which evaluates and cares for these patients. This map here shows where these centers already exist in the US in the green. And I expect that we will probably see more and more of these as time goes on. Um, and with that, I will turn over to Tobias. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. Thank you for including me as well. So my task is to uh, talk about vaccines. And I did recently uh, during the town hall meeting that was done uh, in conjunction and set up by Stephen Freer. Um, I will go into some uh, topics for the mRNA vaccines, but I will not discuss the um, efficacy of those vaccines again. So um, some slides that were put together a couple of months ago outlining the different vaccine efforts that have been conducted throughout the world. And to start off with these genetic vaccines, which the mRNA vaccines are the predominant ones um, that now, of course, two of which have received EUA authorization. There is a whole host of vaccines that are developed um, on different continents, uh, some of which have moved on since that slide was done into phase three or approval. Um, for instance, the CureVac vaccine that you see on top there uh, from Germany is now in the end of a phase three clinical trial. And of course, the BioNTech and Moderna vaccines are now approved for emergency use. There is, besides the mRNA vaccines, also DNA vaccines for which there's no um, approved vaccines either. And they have sort of a problematic history altogether, but there's one being developed in Japan currently that also has promising results. Then uh, there's a group of inactivated or attenuated vaccine trials, uh, one of which was just approved in India, uh, manufactured by Bharat Biotechnology. And um, uh, there's, there's various uh, discussions about the efficacy of that uh, uh, vaccine. It's licensed locally only, and um, if those vaccines will be, um, you know, available across uh, here in the United States or in Europe is rather questionable. But this is sort of the local solution in different countries to develop cheaper vaccines for the local market that don't require these complex uh, uh, storage um, um, provisions like the mRNA vaccines with uh, the deep freezer technologies. Then there's a whole group of uh, protein-based vaccines uh, of which um, they have not received any approval as of yet and the data are not available to really uh, say how much it will play a role in the future. The uh, 
one that we'll talk about today is the AstraZeneca vaccine, and they fall into the viral vector uh, vaccine class. And um, I will point this one out in particularly because this is likely the one that will uh, be reviewed by the FDA next, although there's only um, interim analyses uh, data available um, at this time. Um, I want to say that a lot of good data is available on the New York Times Vaccine Tracker webpage, which is incredible and literally updated on a daily basis. Um, and this is uh, not necessarily in a too scientific uh, way written. It's uh, very well understandable by lay persons, but um, you have a very quick and uh, very good overview of what type of vaccine you're looking at um, and the entire history of uh, how it pertains to, to this development process. So the AstraZeneca vaccine, the Oxford uh, vaccine that was uh, produced um, in, in England primarily, um, is a very different platform uh, compared to the genetic vaccines that we've heard so much about lately. So this is a viral vector vaccine and it's, uh, it's made up of uh, replication deficient chimpanzee adenovirus that is constructed as essentially the shell and it contains the SARS-CoV-2 virus protein gene. It was already approved in the UK um, end of uh, last year, just about a week ago, and most recently also in India. Interesting enough is that the um, approval was based not on one really large homogenous trial like for the mRNA vaccines, but rather on a matter of smaller um, trials that were done in several countries. Two larger trials were done in the UK, another one was done in, in uh, Brazil and one in South Africa. Um, and at this time, it's only an interim analysis. Some of these data flow into this interim analysis. Um, others are we still waiting for. But based on uh, three single and one double-blinded placebo-controlled uh, trials, uh, we have data available. So um, this vaccine was uh, entirely studied only in an adult population, 18 and above. If you remember, the mRNA vaccine for Pfizer was 16 and above. And um, the administration was done roughly four weeks apart. I say roughly because um, it was very different depending on which RCT you're looking at in the UK versus in Brazil. The doses were sometimes administered even up to 12 weeks apart. That had to do with manufacturing uh, issues um, in, in part. The goal was every four weeks, but the average uh, time lapsing until the second dose is actually 69 days. The other interesting uh, portion was that there was no clear placebo uh, control group. The uh, individuals who received a control injection was actually with a vaccine Menactor, so a very highly immunogenic vaccine that was uh, uh, functioning as a control group. So then you may also have heard from the media the issue of low-dose versus standard-dose issues. There were issues in regards to quality control. The uh, facility that produced uh, the vaccine in Italy um, used uh, in the control, uh, quality control batches, different assays of how to assure that the right amount of virus was actually contained in the vaccine. They used the chromatographic method and then they used the PCR method and eventually found out that they um, had actually different results. The result of that was that uh, by the time this was noted, already over a thousand individuals had received what is now titled as a low-dose injection, which contains only about half of the intended um, amount of virus uh, variants in the injection. 
Nevertheless, this was um, the, the trials were not halted for this, and it was uh, simply moved on with the subsequent enrollments uh, receiving the standard dose. But uh, this is essentially split up now in terms of the evaluation um, with a subgroup um, that is assessed with a so-called low dose and standard dose. The time variations. Um, I was speaking about earlier, and there's also significant uh, age group differences. The uh, second larger trial in the UK in, uh, involved mostly younger individuals. This was mostly healthcare individuals and people at higher risk and uh, social risk groups. Um, and those were the ones that received the low dose versus uh, the standard dose initially. In September, the trial was uh, halted for about a week. Um, because there was a case of transverse myelitis associated in um, a recipient of the actual vaccine, which occurred about 14 days after the vaccine was given. Later on, the trial was uh, resumed, and the assessment was that this was unclear if this was related to the vaccine or not. Um, the trial assessment is, is somewhat difficult because of all these um, issues with uh, the setup of the trials and the fact that these are interim analyses. The overall efficacy of the trials was about 70%, but um, I'm going to show you now the um, different groups, which is quite important to notice. So if you look here, I'm sorry, I thought I had my laser pen here. So the overall efficacy combining all these different types of groups, the low dose, standard dose in the first vaccine uh, administration, and then the second vaccine administration standard and standard was about 70%. When you look at the low dose recipients followed up by the standard dose recipients, which is a much smaller cohort here, it actually resulted in higher efficacy in regards to reduction of COVID illness being defined by positive NAT for COVID plus any uh, uh, at least one active symptom for COVID was 90% versus 60% in the group that received both standard doses. You see the standard deviation is, uh, uh, the, the confidence intervals are somewhat large. This is simply based on the fact that um, these are not the large mRNA trial uh, populations of 40,000 or 30,000 as in Pfizer and Moderna respectively, um, because this was literally a hiccup in the trial. But nevertheless, um, yet another trial that uh, was pulled off during a pandemic, and we have interim data and soon to have uh, more consistent follow-up data um, going forward, which is yet another quite significant achievement. So this is what this looks like uh, when you look at Kaplan-Meier in terms of uh, outcomes. Uh, you clearly see the diversion of the lines here in regards to placebo and the active adenovirus uh, vaccine. Uh, the numbers get quite small when you get to now the uh, days since uh, second dose by like 80 or here 100 days. We just, uh, the trial had not progressed as uh, so far that uh, a lot of conclusions can be reached at this time. I want to say in terms of adverse effects, um, the, the data were not presented in the main paper that was published in the Lancet. Um, in very much detail, there's an appendix, large and difficult to read table that uh, splits out the 80 uh, designated serious side effects compared to menactrobit also had, which also had the same amount of significant side effects. So it was about evenly split between the two groups uh, in a whole large uh, group from cardiovascular events to um, even fractures, everything that gets reported in clinical trials related or unrelated. Most 
notice, noticeable were three cases of transverse myelitis, two of which occurred in the vaccine group, one of which occurred in the Menactor group. One case, um, as I said earlier, uh, occurred 14 days after vaccine administration and was potentially related to the vaccine, even though a neurology expert panel assessed that it was likely not related, but uh, doubts about that still persist. A second case was later ruled in as having multiple sclerosis and was uh, not thought to be secondary to the adenovirus vaccine, um, but simply hadn't been clinically diagnosed uh, prior to enrollment into the vaccine trial. So I want to talk about safety about the um, other mRNA vaccines. Um, as I said, efficacy um, is now widely known to be highly effective. Um, the mRNA vaccines uh, have 95 versus 94% efficacy in clinical trials for Pfizer and Moderna respectively, and I will not further talk about this. So in regards to um, safety endpoints, um, after the first dose administration, Pain in the injection site is by far the most likely side effect. And you see that there is slightly higher incidence in the younger age group, 16 to 55, versus the individuals over 55 years of age. And uh, that persists to uh, when you look at the trial data from after the second dose. In fact, after the second dose, the majority of people, almost 90%, will have um, an adverse effect at the injection site. Severe um, side effect, which is also a smatter of uh, things that occur from severe enough headache that you have to seek care in the emergency department to profound diarrhea um, causing the same, is very low. And we're actually the same between uh, the um, vaccine group versus the placebo group. This in particular slide here is from the Pfizer trial. So when you look at the other systemic events, um, uh, this is uh, broken up into the uh, different types of symptoms that occur, and I also showed this slide about three weeks ago in the town hall meeting. Uh, fever is a low incidence, but nevertheless will occur in 16% of individuals, about fourfold incidence compared to after what happens to the uh, first dose administration. And then we have typical um, vaccine-like side effects with headache and fatigue and muscle pain also occur more frequently after the second dose compared to the first dose. In general, though, it is to say that uh, there's an excellent safety profile from the mRNA vaccines. Most reactions are really mild uh, and very transient. They only occur about two to three days after um, the injection has been performed. And in comparison to the actual infection with SARS-CoV-2, patients uh, uh, don't generally develop cough, shortness of breath, rhinorrhea, the anosmia that's been associated so um, distinctively just does not occur. Also, another thing that uh, has been uh, uh, a concern in the um, previous uh, trials for SARS-CoV-1 and, for instance, uh, um, with the dengue vaccine that was tried two years ago, were vaccine-associated disease enhancement, which relates to very small antibody uh, provision. And then once uh, uh, the actual disease is contracted, a massive inflammatory cytokine storm ensuing and essentially the vaccine propagating the disease much more vividly than you would otherwise anticipate has really not been seen in any of these trials at this time. And severe reactions are overall very uncommon. Um, I want to talk a little bit about allergic reactions and the incidence thereof. In the Pfizer-BioNTech uh, trial, about 1.3 per, uh, per 100,000 doses was uh, noted to have some sort of allergic reactions. Overall, these were quite mild. The question is really what this is from, and that is really not clear by any means. 
it's uh, unclear if the so-called polyethylene uh, glycol component that's uh, part of the uh, lipid nanoparticle is uh, the uh, potential inciting factor uh, that's being looked into yet at this point, but we really don't know. And you see here between the two uh, main mRNA vaccine trials, uh, the incidences, uh, the percentages of uh, hypersensitivity-related adverse drug reactions here are quite low. And uh, also quite notable, this is um, almost essentially identical in the placebo group, which certainly um, uh, you, you clearly wonder if some of the reactions that are reported are simply related to the fact that the person received an injection in the first place. So anaphylactoid case reports. Uh, in Pfizer, there was one case of anaphylaxis in one case of drug hypersensitivity reaction. Those people had to be treated um, and uh, they resolved uh, quickly. There were two cases of delayed hypersensitivity reaction in the Moderna trial. Only one with a delayed allergic reaction was in the vaccine group, however, out of those. And they occurred several months after the vaccination and it's completely unclear if this is related to the vaccine and overall uh, the time relation does not support that it was truly related to the vaccine. There were three events of lip and face swelling one or two days after vaccination, but those exclusively occurred in patients who previously had uh, dermal fillers into their skin. And um, yet again, it uh, is unclear if this was related somehow to a reaction to the dermal fillers in the skin. Um, I want to mention that there is a special CDC uh, site set up now called the Clinical Immunization Safety Assessment Project, uh, where you can actually uh, contact the CDC and receive help in case you have a complicated story of a patient presenting with some sort of um, anaphylactic or allergic history and it's unclear to the provider if that person should receive the, uh, any of the vaccines, period. So you can either call or send emails and have the case discussed and then come to a conclusion together with the CDC if that person should receive uh, vaccination or not. So I had prepared several FAQs, but uh, it's 8.54. Laura, uh, perhaps we um, turn it over to questions. Um, otherwise, I'm happy to go through the FAQs either way. Uh, perhaps, uh, Dr. Push, take a few moments to go through your FAQs because I suspect those will come up a lot and we'll take a couple minutes at the very, very end if we have time for group questions. Fair enough. So the duration of protection um, of uh, vaccine-derived uh, immunity, uh, Rachel alluded this, a uh, couple of, of trials that looked at this. And this is from the initial phase one trial uh, from Moderna, looking longitudinally at um, antibody titers, neutralizing antibody titers, as well as uh, T-cell mediated cellular immune response. Um, there's an initial small amount of waning of titers uh, in the, within the first about month, but otherwise we have persistence up to the three, four month mark of uh, antibody titers, which is suggestive that you have a more longer lasting immune response to those vaccines which is quite encouraging. Um, of course, we don't have any data going into 2021, but um, I would imagine there will be, um, you know, at the mid-year mark, um, and there's certainly anticipated follow-up uh, uh, data to be published about uh, longitudinal results. So prevention of asymptomatic infections, the trials officially did not assess that. Yet, um, 
you may have seen in the news uh, in the Moderna trial, which uh, released information uh, in that regard, um, because subsequently uh, people who were tested, they were participants in the trial, uh, in both in the vaccine group, in the placebo group, were found to have asymptomatic infection by sheer positivity of nucleic acid amplification testing. And there were about three times as many individuals identified in that manner in uh, the placebo group. Yet, of course, this is not randomized in any way. This is just an observation we don't know. Pfizer is supposed to release data in that same manner uh, about individuals like this uh, in now in January of 2021. Uh, groups including pregnancy, children, adolescents, immunosuppressed individuals were not studied. Uh, they were rather excluded from the trials, and we can really not say much about those. Um, so I did I did already talk about that. Um, Anaphylaxis. Should patients with anaphylaxis history to other, uh, to other vaccines receive the mRNA vaccine? Uh, they were excluded. The CDC officially on the um, current interim statement about these kinds of issues um, suggested not to vaccinate people with a history of anaphylaxis. What about patients with prior COVID infections? Uh, they were also excluded from the trials. Uh, there's small samples nevertheless that made it into this into the trial, the reactogenicity so far is unclear and there cannot be any sort of final conclusions about this. The CDC is, uh, has put out about literally two different statements about this. Number one, the patient should really have had complete resolution of uh, signs and symptoms of COVID-19. And the uh, con considering the um, how long immunity likely lasts, um, and Rachel was talking about this as well, about roughly about three months. Um, so it would be somewhat reasonable to vaccinate individuals at that mark. So 90 days is currently the final statement when you look at the bottom of the interim uh, statement from the CDC to wait until prior COVID patients get vaccinated. It is to note that vaccination produces a higher uh, geometric mean titer uh, of neutralizing antibodies. Where this fits in in regards to natural infection is unclear. But of course, there is this issue of mild infections, only very superficial stimulation of the immune system in the uh, nasopharynx without systemic uh, infection really occurring and people having low titers and quickly you know, dropping titers. So uh, in general, patients should have offered a vaccine. The anti-spike uh, protein monoclonal antibody infusions, currently the suggestion is also to wait three months. The FAQ page from the CDC addresses a whole host of questions uh, that you may have. Um, on the bottom, there's the hyperlink to that page that you can review on your own. Um, and um, it also discusses things like interchangeability of vaccines, which was not studied and shouldn't be done, but FYI. Um, highlights. Uh, GBS, Guerrero Barre syndrome, should people get vaccinated who've had a history of that? The conclusion at this point in time is yes, there were no cases in the mRNA vaccine trials, neither is there any reported in the um, adenovirus vaccine trial. In fact, um, as such, uh, currently the recommendation is to vaccinate. What about Bell's palsy? There were several cases recognized in the Moderna and in the BioNTech trials, four in fact in the BioNTech trials and none in the placebo recipients. Three in the Moderna trial uh, vaccine recipients, one in the placebo recipient. Still, if you look what the natural incidence of belt palsy is, it's about 10 to 34 per 100,000 per year. If you calculate that down, it would be about in the trials, uh, which total included about 75,000 patients roughly, follow-up period, 
four, five, or six months, it varies. You get down that you would expect about four to 12 cases in the trials to be occurring, and that's exactly what we're seeing. So it matches the natural incidence. At this point, the recommendation is to vaccinate anyone who had a history of belt palsy as well. When to give the second dose if a vaccine develops COVID in between the two dosings, we really don't know. There's no clear recommendations at this point. Should you take the vaccine? Of course, my own opinion here. Uh, the probability and degree of complications from natural infection without preformed immunity in the individual is by far greater than any of the vaccine concerns uh, uh, could uh, uh, show those. And take the very small risk yeah, with a vaccine um, versus uh, uh, an uncalculatable uh, risk with natural infection. So the other thing is altruistic behavior, people who don't have a great vaccine response or for one reason or another don't take the vaccine are unprotected, you yourself should be contributing to herd immunity, go get the vaccine. So the current logic, no question, undoubtedly so, favors receiving the vaccine. And with that, Laura, maybe we'll get a couple of questions in. Yeah, I want to recognize that we are right at nine o'clock um, and remind everybody, perhaps who joined late, that this entire presentation is viewable via the same link as the invite to this talk. Many of the questions were answered throughout the talk, uh, and I don't want to hold our speakers on long. One logistic question. Uh, if I diagnose a reinfection with a rapid test in clinic, do I need to do anything special, such as referral, or are those studies of the two different infections really something more for academic settings? Yeah, those, um, I, I don't know to what extent our um, state public health department is um, sequencing, you know, people who've had two different infections, but generally, um, as I mentioned, most people who are diagnosed with reinfection, we don't have their original sample for comparison. So um, you are not required to do anything different other than to report it if you truly think that they have a new infection. Um, and then, of course, counsel your patient about quarantining as you would if it were the first time they were infected. Great. Thanks so much. And I think in respect of everybody's time, we'll go ahead and end our session on time. Sorry for those few questions we didn't get to, um, but you'll see our follow-up email about CME credit and can reach out to us um, by email as well. Thanks so much for a wealth of information, you three. Thanks for having us.